coming up. Nadine did not know Stephen or even had anything to do with him. She did not deserve this. If there's a place in hell, I know he's in it and I hope he rots there. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. This is uh, Nadine, her husband Mark, and their son Dan. Um, This picture was taken just shortly before uh, Nadine was killed. In the winter of 1980, a 25-year-old mother from Ohio named Nadine Major was found by her husband, stabbed to death in their apartment. And at the time, it was a case detectives couldn't figure out. The investigators found that there was no evidence of sexual assault, no evidence of forced entry, no evidence of robbery. No motive could be established at this time. Nobody knew why this happened, or there was no evidence of why it happened. But 42 years later, investigators say they finally figured out who killed Nadine Major. So we kept working until we stumbled across this death record. I thought Nadine's killer would never be found. The police, they never gave up. 42 years later, they found out who murdered Nadine Lindsay Buckingham is joining us from WKYC in Cleveland. Lindsay, in July, you covered some recent updates on a more than 40-year-old cold case from Willoughby, Ohio. Start by telling us a little bit about the victim in this case. Who was Nadine Major? Yeah, so Nadine Major was a young mother, 25 years old, to six-month-old Daniel Major. She was a stay-at-home mom and just one of those people that was beloved. I know that we hear that a lot with these situations, but just a really good gal who enjoyed being a mom. Now she lived in Willoughby, um, shared an apartment with her husband, Mark. But again, just not a lot of details surrounding what her life was like other than just enjoying being a young mother. It's in the winter of 1980 that Nadine was found dead. Take us through that discovery. So on January 11th, 1980, at about 5 p.m., Nadine's husband, Mark, returned home from work. They lived in an apartment on Grove Avenue in Willoughby. And he came home to discover her on the floor. She had been stabbed more than 40 times with a kitchen knife from their own kitchen. Their six-month-old Daniel was found in a nearby playpen He was unharmed, but had clearly witnessed the horror that had happened to his mom. Police say that she was murdered between the time of one and three. So if you think about it, her husband discovered her just mere hours after the killing. Take us through this investigation. What leads were investigators pursuing in the 80s and in the 90s before we get to some of the more modern technological developments here? So that's a good question because honestly, from 1980 to 1982, Willoughby Police Department worked just tirelessly trying to find any lead. There were no leads. The only thing that they had was that a neighbor reported seeing a canary yellow Dodge Dart that was parked in the rear of that um, apartment complex. She said she had never seen that car there before um, and nobody in the building had ever seen it before. It didn't belong to anybody there. So they believe that could possibly be what the suspect drove there. So 
around the time, I believe it was 1.45 to 4.45, the neighbor reported seeing that color um, car. Other than that, they didn't have any leads. They had no signs of a break-in, no robbery, no sexual assault, no motive, nothing. So in the 80s, especially with the lack of DNA and uh, you know technological advancements there, they really didn't have anything. Every, every lead that was uh, established was, was followed up and exhausted. Um, no perpetrator was ever identified. A um, few tips came in over the years uh, that were uh, followed up by with detectives, but uh, like I said, they never were able to find a really good suspect to, to further the investigation. At their recent press conference, Willoughby Police talked about the piece of evidence that's been central to their investigation just in recent years. Talk about that kind of key piece of evidence here. So about seven years ago, they discovered that there was a uh, key piece of evidence on Nadine's shirt. So the shirt that she wore on the night she was murdered contained the blood and DNA of another person. So between Lake County Crime Lab and Ohio BCI, they discovered that there was a circular blood pattern on her shirt, meaning whoever killed her was leaning over her, dripping on her shirt. This blood was Nadine's blood, and it was also the unknown male suspect's blood. What that told us is the suspect was standing over Nadine and bled on her and had her blood on her and it dripped onto her shirt. So either standing over her or kneeling over her, but we know it was a perpendicular drop based on the circular drip. So that was the big breakthrough in terms of getting the ball rolling with DNA and trying to track down who that blood belonged to. What happens next in this investigation? How are investigators able to move this case forward in recent years? So they got involved with a company called Parabon Nanolabs. It's an advanced DNA technology company. They specialize in phenotyping. So basically what phenotyping is, they um, it predicts physical characteristics of someone based on their DNA profile. So what they were able to do was sort of build out or predict what the murderer looked like. And once they started to track down and narrow down uh, this profile and build out that family tree, they were actually able to start eliminating other people off the suspect list, which, you know, saved them a lot of time. So in the case of Nadine's murder, that's how they started to use that genetic genealogy and build out the family tree. And once they did that, they started to discover who this person was. So there are these two avenues you're describing. This lab was able to get an idea of what the perpetrator looked like through genetic phenotyping, and they were able to start building out a family tree through genetic genealogy. At what point were they able to actually identify a suspect? So a few years ago, they had a hit in the DNA, and they started to really investigate who this person was. And the first thing they did was reach out to someone who they believed was the killer's grandchildren. That's how they began to build this out and start piecing things together. And once they confirmed through DNA that this 
the people they reached out to were indeed the grandchild uh, grandchildren of the suspected murderer. Then they were able to reach out and find this person, uh, Stephen Simcack, had children. They reached out to his children, who were adults at this point, and had absolutely no idea uh, what had been going on with their dad all his life. But that is how they confirmed the DNA to be 100% on the clothing of Nadine Major. So we wanted to get one step closer to Stephen Joseph Simcat. So in April this year, we made contact with one of his children, Stephen Joseph Simcat's children, who provided us with a DNA sample. That DNA sample was analyzed by Lake County Crime Lab and Parabon. Both came to the same conclusion that it was a parent-child relationship. Parabon further analyzed the uh, the DNA sample, and found that the suspect and the child of Stephen Simcack shared 3,439.79 centimorgans with the suspect. And they said that is exclusively consistent with a parent-child relationship with a 100% probability. That means Stephen Simcack is responsible for this crime. And so who is this person that they identified, Stephen Simcack? What did police reveal about this man that they now say was responsible for Nadine Major's killing. So Stephen Simcack is someone who lived in Eastlake, which was very nearby Willoughby. He graduated from Benedictine High School in 1957. He was in the Marines. He spent time in California and Florida. He lived on Sunset Drive from 1963 to 2002. He was a longtime worker of Lincoln Electric, which was in Euclid, for 37 years. He had children. And then what was discovered when they made the DNA hit was that Stephen actually died in uh, 2018. So the sad part is they did all of this work and then discovered he had died. However, because of his children's DNA, they were able to confirm with 100% certainty that that was indeed his DNA on Nadine's clothing. Did investigators reveal any new information as to why this might have happened, what the motive might have been here, or if Simcac had any sort of connection to Nadine Major? This is what is so bizarre, because he did not know Nadine. Her husband, Mark, has no idea who this guy is. The reason they nailed him down in addition to the DNA evidence. So Simcac was a worker at Lincoln Electric in Euclid for 37 years. In 1980, Simcac only called off sick one day for the entire year. And that day was January 11th, 1980. He was supposed to be in for a third shift, and he called in sick with the flu. That whole year, the only day that he called in sick was on Nadine's murder, the day of Nadine's murder. And also, after they nailed down that DNA, after they talked with his children and they interviewed uh, family members of his, they learned that in 1980, Stephen drove a canary yellow Dodge Dart with a white vinyl top, and that is the car that was seen by a neighbor on the day of her murder. Nadine Major's husband was at the press conference when investigators revealed all this new information, and he actually spoke at that press conference. What did he say? Well, it was chilling, and I'll tell you why. He is an example that these families go 40 years. And 
it's a good lesson to learn that that pain and that hurt doesn't go away. It was very emotional. He was still very angry. And he basically said that, and I think this is a direct quote, that he that there is a place in hell for Simcac. He viciously stabbed Nadine 44 times, hitting her in the head, face, torso, ending with a large butcher knife stuck in her chest so deep only the hand was sticking up. Nadine was only 110 pounds. She fought for her life. She never had a chance. Nadine did not know Stephen or even had anything to do with him. She did not deserve this. If there's a place in hell, I know he's in it and I hope he rots there. He said that the pain never goes away, that they've learned to live with it, but that he stole her life and stole her chance to be a mom. One of the things that stuck out to me, I spoke with him after the press conference, he said she was so excited for the first with her son, Daniel, her, you know, his first tooth, the first time that he was going to walk and Simcax stole all of that. He also took a moment and I thought this was incredibly gracious. At the very beginning of his statement, he said that he ha- he holds no ill will against Stephen Simcax's family. I have nothing against the Simcax family. They had nothing to do with this with this father they had. But he did not mince words when it came to Stephen because of the horrific nature of her murder. I want Stephen Simcax family to know what kind of person their father was. He was a thief, a coward, a liar, and a murderer. He concealed the truth so no one would know what he did to Nadine. He stole Nadine from the family and friends. Most of all, he stole Nadine from me and my son, Daniel. How could he get up every day, look himself in the mirror, knowing what he had did? Only a coward could do that. Lindsay Buckingham with WKYC in Cleveland. Thanks for sharing this story. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. We're right here with a new one every day of the week, Monday through Friday. So make sure you're subscribed to or following the podcast wherever it is you're listening right now. If you're looking for something else to listen to, you can head over to vaultstudios.com for a full list of our shows that includes our weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. <laughs>